Father God, we praise you again for the effective message of Christ crucified, which has taken uh, its effect in our lives, in our hearts. We thank you for your word, which makes that gospel knowable to us. We thank you for your spirit who takes the message and applies it to our hearts. Let it live for us again this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Jay-Z is an American hip-hop star. And um, in the eyes of many people, uh, he's a complete success. Dead successful. Let me give you some stats. Worth an estimated $450 million. Sold 50 million albums worldwide. He's won 13 Grammy Awards. In the eyes of the world, he's just a complete success. Similarly, uh, imagine a, a church music ministry that's got a global reach, global reach, known everywhere. Um, their songwriting and their resources are used and consumed all across the globe. They turn in big profits every year. Uh, their worship leaders are household names, admired and adored wherever you go. Their music sounds amazing all the time. I mean, I know that's true for all of you as well, obviously. And I'm not knocking any of these things necessarily. It's just that this morning I want you all to consider how do we define success in music ministry? What what does that look like? How do you know if you succeeded? Because I think our great danger is that we take this worldly wisdom about success, especially about success in music, And we import it into the church and we use it to define success in just the same way. So, for example, you might feel that your music ministry is successful if your fame increases. Even if that just means being known and respected and adored in your own home church. Even if that's quite small. Or you might even grow in skill and get invited to play at a bigger church. Or maybe even at a regional conference. We instinctively want to define success that way, don't we? Bigger, better, more famous. That's better. That's success. Well, this morning we're we're going back to Corinth because this kind of thinking has become a problem for them as well. And specifically in the church in Corinth, they've become obsessed with what you might call all kinds of special spiritual wisdom or knowledge, which is basically the idea that some people's faith or insight is somehow more significant, more impressive than other people's. As I mentioned last night as well, and you can read this in chapter one if if you like, they're also fairly enamored with the Christian celebrities of the day, you know, I follow this one and, and I follow that one. They're not seeing things through the eyes of the gospel. That's the big problem that we identified last night. And Paul makes it quite clear what he thinks or what God thinks of this kind of worldly wisdom imported into the church. Look back, chapter 1, verse 19. Here's what God says. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So somehow God is going to show that the wisdom of the world, including the way the world chooses to define success, is in fact foolishness. And there's a great irony in this. There's just a massive irony hanging over this whole passage. Because the very reason that we are 
tempted or, or likely to um, reject the gospel, the wisdom of God, is that we're tempted to see it on first glance as itself a bit foolish. The reason we're likely to reject the wisdom of the gospel is that on first glance it can seem foolish. There's your first heading if you're taking notes. The gospel seems foolish. Read with me again from verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. I don't know if you remember the first time the gospel was preached to you. Um, I'm a bit like Kate, who we heard from last night. I'd struggle to tell you when that was, having grown up in a Christian family. But I do know that I was, I was privileged to be taught the gospel message in Sunday school. Now, I have to be slightly careful here, just in case any of my former Sunday school leaders are in the room. But you wouldn't have said that my Sunday school was going to win any Grammy Awards for its production values, probably. And, and loving and gifted as they were, Probably my Sunday school teachers weren't going to uh, win any Grammy Awards for their eloquence or public speaking either. My Sunday school was great, but basically a pretty unremarkable place in many ways. And yet that was one of the first places I was introduced to Jesus, which changed my life completely. And you might say it was a bit like that when Paul arrived in Corinth to preach this gospel message, if you'd seen him speak, you might have been asking him to improve his presentation a bit. I mean, he didn't sweep into, into town on this grand speaking tour, book the local football stadium, massive PA, big visuals, glossy marketing campaign, none of that. And if you'd seen him speak, well, you might have thought the whole thing seemed a bit, well, weak. I mean, come on, Paul, you know, get with the times a bit. People are teaching different stuff these days. We could work on your presentation. I could do your new websites, put you in touch with John Bradley. You know, we'll get things moving. But Paul's having none of it. Look again at verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So what's more, Paul is making a deliberate decision to completely reject the thinking and the values of the world when it comes to defining successful ministry. What, why does he do that, you might ask? Well, he does it so, verse 5, that our faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. What's going on here? Well, I think he's concerned that we not simply get carried away with, with great oratory or great presentation, he wants to be sure instead that our faith rests on the substance of the gospel, which is in fact the wisdom of God, on the substance of the gospel. So Paul knows that when the church gets together, a great oratory, great presentation, I might even say great music ministry, which is what we're all about after all, these things are only worth anything in as much as they draw our attention to and communicate clearly and captivate people's hearts with the substance of the gospel, with the substance of the gospel. It seems like an age ago, doesn't it, that Barack Obama stood on, on the steps of Congress, sworn in as the, the new president of the United States. 
And I don't know if you remember, but it, it followed the most remarkable campaign. Um, I remember Morag and I trying to stay up through the night to, um, as the votes came in. The, the campaign was just remarkable, and it was characterized, if you remember, by just the most amazing uh, speech-making, particularly from Obama, just great oratory. And yet how, how different the situation seems today. Um, Obama's time in office has been, I guess you'd say, difficult. Progress towards his, his desired aims has been pretty slow. I guess we'd have a degree of sympathy with him given the state of the economy and the, the weight of expectation on his shoulders. And the point is not that great oratory and presentation and music, if you like, are worthless. Not at all. In fact, Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, is the author of some of the most brilliant and beautiful prose um, in the Bible, some of it here in 1 Corinthians. It's just that these things can only affect your eternal destiny, that is, heaven or hell, by the extent to which they lead you to Christ crucified. See, everything Paul does and, and says is shaped by one message, Christ crucified. His only passion and focus, Christ crucified. Christ crucified. So that's a king who dies. A king who dies. And maybe even the message and, and not just the method seem a bit weak and foolish. And perhaps you've come across that attitude yourself. I, I vividly remember, I think I was about 15 in, in high school, and the day that, that one of my best friends found out that I, I was a Christian, remember it vividly, in the science lab, he came to the back of the room, experiments going on everywhere, and, um, and shouted in my face, you don't believe in God, do you? And when I said yes, he came back quick as a flash and said, but not the God of the Bible, surely. A bit later, he said to me and another Christian friend at school, I don't believe, I don't understand how intelligent people like you can believe that nonsense. To him, the message of the gospel was weak, it was foolish, it was stupid. And to be honest, I felt weak, foolish and stupid. When we're out in the world, sometimes the message of Christ crucified feels just that. But read on, verse 4. Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. So even if these Corinthian Christians feel like the gospel message is weak, Paul says it came with a great demonstration of the Spirit's power. You might ask what that was. Did, did Paul perform some signs and wonders that, that mark out an apostle? Well, he did do that on some occasions in Corinth. You want to read up on that? Uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. But he's already said here that the, the, the presentation of the gospel seemed unimpressive. I think the demonstration of the Spirit's power can be seen most clearly in the Corinthians themselves in the believers. Look back to chapter 1 again, verse 4. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, in all your speaking, in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. 
He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. The Spirit's power is clear for all to see in the Corinthians themselves, despite all of their problems. As they've accepted the gospel, their lives have been radically transformed, enriched in every way, says Paul. And that reminds me of another friend, my friend Tom. Um, Tom's a musician, plays guitar really well. Um, I've known him since I was about 12. Uh, We met on a a Christian summer camp. And um, really that was another place for both of us that was particularly significant um, in hearing and understanding and accepting the gospel about Jesus. The thing was, Tom always seemed to me to be a person who was just a bit unlikely to be a Christian. His, his dad wasn't a Christian, and as a result, growing up, he never really had a church that he belonged to. Um, he, he was into rock music in a big way, as was I. Um, he played in lots of bands and, and, and hung up with people who, who drank too much and slept around. And yet every year, Tom would come back to this summer camp and somehow seem to have clung on to faith in Jesus. If he'd asked me back then... I, I would have said probably Tom wouldn't keep coming. He wouldn't have kept on believing in Jesus. And yet today the situation looks completely different. Tom is married to a great Christian girl. He belongs to a really great church. He himself is beginning to teach others from the Bible. It's just so clear to me that Tom has been powerfully at work in Tom his whole life. His life has been transformed, and it's a remarkable demonstration of the Spirit's power. Quite remarkable. Because, you see, the gospel is wise. That's your second heading if you're following along. The gospel is wise. Read from verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. God in his supreme wisdom has prepared wonderful things wonderful things for those who love him that's verse 9 God planned it all from before the dawn of time that he would send Christ into the world that's verse 8 he sent Christ to live and to die and to rise as we heard last night all for our sins that we might know him it's a plan that looks foolish to the world just looks like a king who dies doesn't look impressive just, just, just a king who dies You see, the very way, the very way that God chooses to work to bring about salvation for the humble, it prohibits the participation of the proud. So the proud person doesn't get any part, no piece of the wonderful things God has prepared for those who love him, because the proud person will never accept the wisdom of God. They just won't accept it, because it's displayed in the gospel, displayed at the cross, and to them, it just looks weak, it just looks foolish, just looks stupid it just looks like a king who dies 
And I think that's why back in chapter 1, verse 26, that Paul says not many Christians in Corinth were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of noble birth. And yet at the cross of Jesus, we see the wisdom of God in all its majesty displayed. And lastly then, that's why we, just like Paul, should let the gospel be the thing more than anything else that shapes our ministry. The gospel is our model for music ministry. You probably noticed that that this message of Christ crucified, it, it defines not only Paul's message, obviously, but also his method the things he does, the way he does them. And to the world, his, his methods, his priorities, his ways of working, his presentation, it might have looked a bit weak and foolish. But Paul is completely single-minded in allowing the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of the world to shape everything he does. Everything he does. So as we end, here's a question. What should you do if you want your music ministry to be shaped by the message of Christ crucified, what should you do? How does it work? Well, at least three things. Here's three things. Here's the first one. Serve people. Serve them. Make your music ministry about doing other people a great good. Make it about them. We read last night, didn't we, that In response to the gospel, Paul labors. He labors for the sake of others as a servant of the gospel. So remember, each time you you rehearse, you work hard, you you lead your church in song, as you look out on the people you lead, your church family, remember that what you're doing is not about you at all. Everything you do is for them, not for you. You're doing it for their benefit. Look, I'm sure you enjoy music. I love music. And I love serving the church in music. I love the, the, the community of, of being involved with other musicians. But we don't need musicians. We don't need musicians who will give up when things stop being fun. We, we just don't need that. Or, or who take their ball home when things aren't quite done their way. We don't need that either. We need musicians who know and love and will serve their church family. Musicians who just long for them to be built up in the gospel message of Christ crucified. Musicians who know that enabling God's people to bring him praise is a completely high and noble calling. So serve other people. Here's the second thing you should do. Place your trust in the gospel. Place your trust in the gospel. The message of Christ crucified is the only thing which will bring effective change in people's hearts. It's the only thing that will affect change in people's hearts. I don't know what you're like when it comes to thinking about music ministry. In my job as music coordinator at Christchurch Fullwood, I am always, it goes on constantly in my head, I am always tempted to believe that if we just buy this new piece of gear... If we just get the PA better, if we just train our musicians more, if we just implement better structures and strategies and plans for our music ministry, then we will be effective and fruitful. All of these things are important and have their place. But they are only effective, they are only effective in as much as they bring people to receive 
the message of Christ crucified. The only message that affects real change in people's hearts and can lead you to life everlasting. Music can't do that. The gospel can. Thirdly and finally, once you've realized that, it will shape the way you pray. Your prayer of, uh, oh Lord, let, let, let the music go smoothly, ought to be transformed into an impassioned plea that, that God, through the work of his Holy Spirit, might use our singing to awaken gospel hope in people's hearts, to, to encourage people, to encourage believers to see Jesus Christ as glorious, as wonderful, and to bring gospel life to those who are, at the minute, in the Bible language, spiritually dead. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. Pray for the Spirit's working. Pray for the Holy Spirit to take the gospel message and apply it to people's hearts. Pray for the Spirit's working. And really to summarize those three things, serve people, place your trust in the gospel, pray for the Spirit's working. I want to end by reading you a blog post. Uh, It's a a blog post from uh, American uh, worship leader. I forget his name, to be honest. I read this last week and was so struck by it. So as we end, listen to this. Not once has anyone ever come up to me and remarked by how much they were affected by the fact that the copyright dates on the songs we were using were all after the year 2000. No one has ever told me how much they were really ministered to by my new guitar. I've never heard someone say that their life was changed by that new chord progression we used on the second verse of Here I Am to Worship. I haven't heard of anyone seeing Jesus as more precious because of the new drum shield and acoustic panels we bought. No one has been impacted more by the gospel because we played the song almost exactly like the recording. We got in-ear monitors a few years ago. I don't think the Holy Spirit came down in tongues of fire that first Sunday. I think I'd remember that. It's not like using in-ear monitors, drum shields, new progressions, new songs, and good arrangements is a bad thing. It's just that they don't change anyone's life. Only Jesus will. The assurance that my shepherd will supply my needs, Jehovah is his name, brought peace to a new widow and now single mother. The truth of the gospel that from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny, comforted parents who'd lost their infant son. The good news that he must win the battle assured a congregation after learning that they will probably lose their building. The grace of God that breaks the power of cancelled sin and sets the prisoner free reminded a man lost in sin that there is always freedom in Christ. I'm sure the equipment we used, the arrangements we rehearsed, the time we put into choosing these songs all contributed to helping people to sing these words. But the widow, the bereaved parents, the shocked congregation and the lost man found no comfort, no hope, no peace and no life in what we had to offer. It was Jesus who shined through. Jesus is who they encountered. 
I think way too many worship leaders, worship teams, creative teams, video producers, choirs, and choir directors get lost in a sea of creativity and artistic expression and classic works and new songs and great equipment and fresh arrangements and ten rehearsals and burn themselves out trying to make great music. I love Bob Coughlin's line that music is a great tool but a terrible idol. Indeed. All this is a simple reminder that we have a great saviour and he is the one who will change people's lives forever. Great music for the sake of great music is a waste of time and people's tithe money. Great music to present our great saviour who is the only hope of the world is why we can and should do what we do. Let's pray. Father God, captivate our hearts, we pray, with the message of Christ crucified. And help us in our labor to lead others to him. In Jesus' name, amen.